In 1980, everybody remember the 80s, 1980? Uh, some of y'all weren't even born then, but that's okay. In 1980, uh, native Texan Johnny Lee recorded a hit single for the movie Urban Cowboy called Looking for Love. Anybody remember that song? Yeah, okay, Looking for Love. Uh, it actually uh, skipped genres. It wasn't just a country hit. It was a, a national hit. It was number one in the country billboard charts. It was number five in the overall billboard Hot 100 I believe it was number one in the country music hits and, and, and came over all the way over to the Billboard Hot 100 because, well, it, it speaks to what we're all looking for. Hey, listen to the, the refrain of this song. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes and looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. You've heard it, right? We lived in Houston for a while, so we got to learn that song. It's a movie was filmed in Houston starring John Travolta. Anyway, I think that song was popular because it spoke to what we're all looking for, right? I mean, in our heart, we have this innate desire to be loved and to love someone else. Our, our pop culture is, is filled with love songs and movies, romantic movies about love and books and novels about love. We're obsessed for love. We're all looking for love. But where can real love, true love, everlasting love be found? Is it found in a song? Is it found in a relationship with another person? Or maybe it's found somewhere else. Open your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 Beginning with verse 1, it may be found on page 1147 of your Red Pew Bible, John chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Before I read uh, God's Word, I feel a need to give you a little bit of context of this passage of Scripture that Michael Ann referenced just a moment ago in the children's sermon. You know, before John 15, there's John 13, and in John 13, Jesus is in the upper room, and he's just washed his disciples' feet, and he's, he's shown what kind of leader he is. He's a servant leader, and then he he tells Judas Iscariot, he says, go do what you need to do and do so quickly. And we were told that Satan entered Judas and Judas left the room. And then Jesus is looking at his, his remaining 11 disciples and he tells them in John 13, 34 to 35, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this all will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The mark of a follower of Jesus is that we love. One another. Unfortunately, in our current culture, the church has not become so known so much for love as it has become known for judgment. The church has become more known for what it's against rather than what it is for. According to the Pew Research Forum, the number of people who identify themselves as Christian in America today has dropped by 8%. Ironically, the fastest growing religious group is called the nuns. That's not the N-U-N-S not a bunch of women called nuns. No, it's the N-O-N-E-S. The people who have no religious affiliation, they call themselves the nun. 23% of adults in America today have no religious affiliation. And if we dig just a little bit deeper in who are the nuns exactly, the majority of them are under the age of 30. Many millennials, those born between 1982 and 2004, don't want to associate with the church today because in their minds, the church is inauthentic, irrelevant, and often judgmental. In a culture that holds tolerance as its primary value, sadly, the church has not proved to be tolerant in the eyes of some. It seems to be judgmental. 
So how can we as the church, as the people of God, make sure that we're known more for love and less for judgment? How can we make sure that we're the kind of people who live out what Jesus calls us to in John 13, 34 to 35, that we love one another in such a way that we become known as his followers in the way that we love each other? Where can this true love be found? To find out, open the Red Pew Bible to John chapter, 14, John chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today, the words of Jesus as recorded by John. God, we pray that as you read these words of Jesus that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that our hearts might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away that it may, takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the father cannot bear fruit by itself, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches that are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Here in the reading of God's word is the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John 15 verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15 verse 5 is a life verse for me. It's my favorite verse in the Bible because I've seen in my own life that when I'm not abiding in Christ, 
I'm unable to be the fruit-bearing Christian God has called me to be. I must abide in Christ if I hope to bear the kind of fruit that God calls us to bear as his followers. So how do we abide in Christ exactly? Well, the Greek word for abide here is meno. It can be translated as abide, reside, remain. In fact, in the NIV version, which I memorized, John 15, verse 5, the old 1984 NIV, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we abide in Christ exactly? How can we remain in Christ exactly? Whenever we read the Bible and we have a word or a phrase that we're not exactly sure what it means, the best thing we can do is actually to see where else that word or phrase is used in the Bible. Specifically, how does the author of that particular passage of Scripture, how does that person use that word? Now, we know the Holy Spirit inspired all the authors of Scripture, but John was written by John. So where else does John use the word meno or abide in his gospel? Well, the first time he uses the word abide is in John chapter 5, verse 37 to 38. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who is an invalid, unable to walk for over 30 years. And and he heals this man. He says, take up your mat and walk. And so the man does. Miraculously, he gets up, takes up his mat, and begins to walk. Well, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these Jews who are very legalistic, see this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and they get all worked up about it. They say, man, why are you carrying your Matt, on the Sabbath, don't you know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? You're breaking the law. And so Jesus has to reprimand these legalistic Jews. And he says to them in John chapter 5, verse 37 to 38, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have not seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. For Jesus... God's word must abide in us. We see this emphasis on God's word abiding in us. In our passage I read in John 15, in in verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As we seek to follow Jesus, it's critical that his words abide in us. And God's word will abide in us as we read it as we meditate on it, and as we seek to memorize it, put it to memory, so that it becomes, as as John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church says, the Word of God will literally become the spectacles or the lens through which we will see all of the rest of the world. If we want to know what God would have us do, we need the, the Word of God to abide in us So that if we ever feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit, we we will know that it's the Holy Spirit if it's consistent with his word. If we have other kinds of promptings, that, that might be from our sinful nature or from the enemy himself. But if it's consistent with God's word, we know that it's the Holy Spirit who's prompting us. For instance, during the season of giving, if, if you feel the prompting to give generously or, or, or just to, to do an act of generosity, you can be pretty sure that's the Holy Spirit who's prompting you to do that. Because as we read the Bible, we can see that time and time again, our God is a very generous God. In fact, in John 3, verse 16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We serve a very generous God, and every time we're generous, we reflect the generous nature of our God. As Paul points out in Acts 20, verse 35, he's quoting Jesus, he it says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
If we feel the Spirit prompting us to give and we look at it to Scripture, say, yeah, that's, that's consistent. That must be the Holy Spirit prompting me to give, to be generous because I know I serve a generous God. In a moment, Murray is going to share with you about how our church seeks to be a generous church. You know, we, we give 16% of our operating budget to local and global missions. And, and on your pews, you may have noticed there's a little flyer that has the list of all the different missionaries. And if you haven't already, go into the Great Hall and you can see the map of the world. And you can see how we have missionaries all over the globe. Now over 40 missionaries serving Christ's uh, kingdom. And, and we are able to be a part of that by giving to them and, and praying for them. Now, I've had conversations with people who time and every now and then will say, well, isn't it more efficient if, if I just fund the church's on, uh, missionaries on my own? And, and that's a fine thing to do. My wife and I, we fund some people on our own that, that we do in our own budget. But, but there's power when the body of Christ, the church, helps sponsor a missionary. Because when we sponsor a missionary, you know, like Garrick and Ziu Regner, those are friends of mine from high school. They're in Spain. They spoke to us several months ago. They're working with Campus Crusade for Christ. When we sponsor them, now it's not just... Howard and Sarah praying for the Regners, but when our church sponsors them, now we've got a thousand people praying for them. And we're making plans to go visit them in Spain to be a part of the work they're doing. When we sponsor people like Greg and Faith Hurst, we're able to take a team down to Bolivia to, to help them, to, to serve alongside them. We're able to take a team to, to Ireland to, to work with Billy Swan. Yes, when we pool our resources together, God is able to take what we give and able to multiply it to minister to so many more. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that our, that our church seeks to be generous by, by giving and supporting so many different people. That would be consistent with, with God's word, who calls us to make disciples among all nations, to support others. As Paul, the apostle, was supported by the church in Philippi to do the work that he did. And we know that we don't just need to give money, we need to pray. First, you read in Psalm 127, verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. It's when the word of God begins to abide in us and we begin to put it to memory, then, well, then we'll know that when, when someone hurts us, we're called to turn the other cheek because that's what Jesus said to do. We'll know that we're called to pray for enemies because that's what Jesus says to do in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll know that we're called to treat others the way that we would like to be treated. That's also in the Sermon on the Mount. Is the word of God abiding in you today? Can you say that the scriptures are really the lens through which you see the world? Do you have a favorite verse of scripture or a favorite saying of Jesus that, that you really call upon to lead you in your life today? If you don't, I would encourage you to start reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it, and as you read it, underline any words or phrases that stand out to you. Specifically, pay attention to the sayings of Jesus, because he's the word made flesh. He's the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to be. And in my Bible, they're all in red, so they're real easy to find, right? Start to read the words of Jesus. Underline them. Begin to meditate on them. Make them your own by memorizing them. If you're like me, I, I have business cards, and I'll write a verse on the back of a business card, and I'll use that business card. And when I'm waiting in line inside of the grocery store, rather than just sit there just twiddling my thumbs, wishing the line would move faster, I could look at that card and remember. Or if I ride an elevator, I can pull out that card and remember God's word so that it might be my guide as I seek to abide in Christ. It says we allow the word of God to abide in us as we dwell on it, meditate on it, and memorize it, then we will find that we'll also begin to pray God's word. For in John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
As we allow the Word of God to abide in us, we'll find that more and more we begin to pray God's will for our lives because we see from the Word of God that the best thing for us is God's will, for our God loves us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. And so what we want is we want God's will, and so we begin to to pray God's Word so that this whatever proves to be the will of God, the Word of God that we wish for our lives, knowing that God loves us. As we allow that word to abide in us, it begins to guide the way that we live and the way that we pray as well. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now this word meno, abide, is not only used in John 5, but it's also used in, in John 6. In John 6, verse 56, Jesus is alluding to the the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper here, and he says to his disciples, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You know, every time we come to this table to experience the Lord's Supper like we will tomorrow night at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock in the evening. When we come to this table and we gather as one body in his name and we... And we say the words of institution, the very same words that Jesus said to his disciples when he, when he instituted or began the Lord's Supper for the very first time. He said, my body given for you, my blood shed for you. And we, and we pray that God might use these elements to draw us ever closer into his presence so that we might experience his love in a very tangible way. We believe as Presbyterians that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to this table and our eyes are open and we're reminded again of just how much God loves us. Like we read in Luke 24, when the two are on the road to Emmaus and, and they, they encounter the risen Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And they're talking to him, and it's not until the breaking of the bread that their eyes are open and they see that it's Jesus. And so when we come to this table, we gather for this meal, we're reminded of just how much God loves us. I've shared this story before, but it, it bears repeating. The story goes, there was a young man right out of seminary. He was a pastor, and he was working at a large church, and he was assigned the the responsibility of serving communion to those who are homebound. You know, as the body of Christ, we know that everybody who believes in Jesus is welcome to this table and that the elements should be offered to everyone. But there are some who are unable to join us for corporate worship on a Sunday. And so this pastor took some bread and juice with him, and he went to deliver it to a, a homebound family, specifically a family where the husband was struggling with Alzheimer's. He was in the late stages of Alzheimer's, and the wife was having to watch him 24-7. We came to the house, and he knocked on the door, and the wife opened the door, and she said, oh, it's so kind of you to want to bring these elements, but I promise you, my husband's not going to know who you are. He's not going to know what you're doing. Sometimes he doesn't even recognize us, and you're brand new. He's not going to know who you are, and I'm pretty sure he's not going to know what you're doing. Well, this pastor, you know, right out of seminary, felt convicted. He knew that, well, the elements are for everybody, and we should offer them to everybody, and we should do whatever we can to deliver that. And so he said, well, I appreciate that, but but I'm going to serve him anyway, if that's okay. And so she said, go ahead. We went into the bedroom where the man was lying, and he he pulled out the bread and the juice, and and he said the words of institution that Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he he poured the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant poured in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. 
And then he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, praying that God would use these elements to remind us again to nourish us with God's great love. And then he handed the bread and the juice to the elderly man who was struggling with Alzheimer's, and, and he consumed it. He took the bread, and he drank the cup. And then in a moment of clarity, the man looked the young pastor right in the eyes. He said, God loves us so much, doesn't he? We come to this table and we're reminded of just how much God loves us. We come to this table so that we might be nourished by God, that we might be nourished by Christ's love, so that we might abide in Christ. But we don't come to this table individually. No, it's a a corporate event. It's called communion. The body of Christ is called to to gather together because when we come together as, as one body in his name, you know, Christ's presence is made known to us. Jesus says, when two or more are gathered together in my name, in Matthew 18, I am there with them. As we come together as one body in his name, as we come to this table, we receive the bread and we drink the cup and we remember just how much God loves us. That he would die for us. That he would give us own life. For us, Jesus says in our text this morning, in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This table points to this cross, reminding us of just how much God loves us. But we shouldn't try to come to this table by ourselves. In fact, we shouldn't even try to simply meditate on the word of God by ourselves. No, we, this is a communal meal, and, and we're the body of Christ, and the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We all need each other. That's why we do this together in corporate worship. We see that that's what the earliest church did. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, we have this beautiful description of the first century church. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers... And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and gracious, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This meal, this table is not just for individuals, it's for the corporate body of Christ. We as the first century church should not seek to simply read the Bible in isolation. In fact, the first century church, they didn't have Bibles. Most individuals did not have Bibles. The Old Testament was very expensive because, well, it was handwritten. Maybe one church would have a scroll. And the New Testament was still being written. What they had was the apostles' testimony, those who had seen the risen Jesus. And as they gathered together as one corporate body, they began to share what they'd seen and what they knew. And the Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way as they gathered around the apostles' teaching for the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. If we want to abide in Christ, we need to spend time in God's Word both individually and corporately like we're doing this morning. We need to gather around God's table and we need to gather together as the body of Christ for for fellowship and prayer so that we might experience Christ's presence together. That's how we abide in Christ. By coming together as Christ's body like we're doing today through the reading and preaching of God's word by coming to the Lord's table for communion, praying for one another and fellowshiping together, knowing that we are the body of Christ together. And as we come together, the Christ in you meets the Christ in me, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, 
Or as Paul writes in Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And you're able to be Christ to me as I'm able to be Christ to you and we can experience Christ's presence together. Yes, if we want to abide in Christ, if we want to be the fruit-bearing Christians that God has called us to be, then we need to be in Christ-centered community where we, where we read, meditate, and reflect on Scripture together. We need to share the Lord's Supper together as one community so that we might be nourished by His love and remember the great love that God has shown for us at the cross of Christ. And finally, we need to humbly, humbly recognize that God has chosen us before we ever chose to follow Him. As Bobby pointed out just a moment ago in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the people of Israel, I have loved you not because you're the greatest of people. I've loved you because I've loved you. Or as Jesus reminds his own disciples in our text this morning in John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If the disciples had chosen to follow Jesus on their own, separate of any invitation by Jesus, they might have a reason to be proud of the decision they had made, but that's not the way it went. No, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were fishermen, and Jesus said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew was at the tax booth, and and Jesus said, come, follow me. Just think about the kind of people that Jesus called to follow him. There There were fishermen, one who would betray Jesus three times. There was a tax collector that nobody wanted on the team named Matthew, but God called him anyway. And there was Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray Jesus ultimately to the cross. Yes, Jesus in his divine love and sovereign will chose and called these disciples and he's calling you and he's chosen to have a relationship with us. And God's unconditional election helps illuminate God's grace. As I begin to realize that God has chosen me, not that I chose him, but that God first loved me, as you read in 1 John 4, this is love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us and gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we'll remember that God has first chosen to love us, then we'll begin to understand just how great God's grace is for all of us. For we don't deserve his love. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love is it than this than when a man is willing to die for his friends. But the Apostle Paul expounds it even further and helps us see even more clearly what Jesus has done for us. For in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8, he writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing in us that merits such a great sacrifice. Beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their original sin, we have inherited a, a sinful nature that left to my own is prone to wander from God. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the scriptures, that God does not abandon us in our sin. No, what we celebrate on Christmas is that Jesus became one of us and was born as a baby in a lowly manger. But he didn't just come to this earth to be with us. He came to this earth to teach us, to heal us, and ultimately to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. To do for us what we can never do for ourselves, to 
to live in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father and then die as the perfect sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all. But the good news of Easter is not that Jesus just died. No, the good news of Easter is that on Sunday, he rose again. Yes, on Sunday, Jesus proved to be who he said he was, the Son of God, the great I Am, the King of Kings. Now, I know that there are many churches in our country and even in our community who some worship on Saturdays and some are starting to worship on Thursdays, and that's great. But you know what? We worship on Sunday because Easter Sunday changed everything. On Easter Sunday, Jesus rose again when nobody thought he would. On Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared before his disciples, and he gave them his peace. Peace, a peace that truly passes all understanding. On Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered both sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the assurance of eternal life, so that we might have the gift of a new life if we simply believe in Him and seek to abide in Him. Amen? Amen. It's the good news of the gospel is that we can abide in Christ each and every day. We can experience His love afresh and anew. We'll take the time we need to read Meditate and memorize his word. If we will gather together in corporate worship so that we might come to this table and, and be fed and nourished by his love, then we'll be ever mindful that God in his sovereign grace chose us before we ever chose him. Thanks be to God for his amazing, unconditional, sacrificial love. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, you are the God who has made yourself known to us. You are the God who loves us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. We see this at the cross of Christ. You're the God who has even chose us to be in a relationship with you. Just as you chose your disciples, you've chosen to make yourself known to us through your holy, inspired word, the various relationships that we've had in our lives, that we're here today to worship you in gratitude for all that you've done for us. True love is found in you and you alone, Lord Jesus. So Lord, help us to reflect your love by taking the time we need to abide in your love, by by reading your word, meditating on it, and memorizing it so that we might live it out, so that we might obey your commandments willfully, not under oppression or feeling like we need to earn your grace, but just out of gratitude for what you've done for us. Help us to abide in you by coming together as one body in your name, gathering at the table so that we might, as the first century church did, Be reminded of your great love, your body given for us, your blood shed for us. Help us, Lord, to be ever mindful that you're the God who first chose us before we ever chose to follow you. For that, we give you thanks and praise. In your son's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.